Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. This week, we have a very special guest. Her name is Marie Lee, and she teaches in the creative writing program at Columbia University, where she's a writer-in-residence and serves on the faculty at the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. She's also a novelist whose next book, The Evening Hero, is forthcoming May 2022 from Simon & Schuster. And she's a co-founder of the Asian American Writers Workshop, whose nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And you're probably wondering, what's the cannabis story with this lady? Because none of the stuff we just said has anything to do with cannabis. But she is best known for a series of essays that she wrote for Slate starting in 2009 titled Why I Give My Nine-Year-Old Pot. Yes, that's right. And close to our hearts, the essay opens with a comedic, Socratic question. Uh, Question. Why are we giving our nine-year-old a marijuana cookie? Answer. Because he can't figure out how to use a bomb. Hey, hey. yeah, some uh, classic joke structure there from Marie Lee. Nice one. But of course, the story is very serious at its heart because Marie's son, Jason, has suffered from autism his entire life. And it has resulted in a lot of difficulties and obstacles for him. She had a real time trying to find the right doctors, trying to find the right medicine, and nothing seemed to work. There were all kinds of horrors and tragedies until she came upon medical cannabis. And despite the discouragement and the stigma at the time around cannabis, she powered through, and it is just so moving to hear her talk about her struggles as a mom and her journey as a cannabis provider for her son. As all these other institutions, the medical establishment, the criminal justice system, and the media were failing her, well, who comes to the rescue but Dr. Lester Grinspoon, who you may know from our episode about him in season one of this podcast. Students for Sensible Drug Policy, one of our most recent episodes, those young activists actually wrote and helped passed the medical cannabis law in Rhode Island that even allowed her to try cannabis for her son, and underground cannabis growers who risked their own freedom for no money to try to supply her not just with cannabis, but a wide range of strains until they were able to find the medicine that worked for Jay. Yeah, absolutely. I think this story really highlights the compassion in the cannabis community, and that is just one of the best things about it. And thank you, everybody who supports us on Patreon, our patrons. We love you. We really appreciate you. We hope you've been enjoying Moments in Weed, our companion series to Great Moments in Weed history that we release weekly exclusively for our patrons. If you're interested in supporting us on there, just Google Great Moments in Weed History Patreon. We would love to have you. And of course, if you don't have the ducats, but you still want to help us out, please tell your friends, tell anybody who might be into it about our podcast and get them listening to. We can't tell you how much we appreciate that support. And, you know, this is also an episode we hope if you do know somebody who has a child with any number of ailments that can be helped by cannabis, 
please share this with them. It's going to be up to them if they want to follow this example, but everyone should at least know that cannabis is an option, could be life-saving, could be life-changing. So please do share that with somebody who, who might benefit. Absolutely. All right. With all that squared away, I think we're about ready to go. I've got a fat bowl packed here for myself. Bean, how about yourself? I got a sweet little J ready to go. Let me test my lighter. Working order, but oh, oh, wait, I'm hearing you might not be rolled up. You might not have a bowl packed. You, you, that, it's cool, man. Just hit pause. Roll one up. Split a blunt. Pack a bong. Uh, dab a dab in your dabulator because, you know, as soon as you're ready. We'll be ready. For another great, great moment in weed history. We are here with author, essayist, and novelist Marie Lee. Thank you so much for joining us on Great Moments in Weed History, Marie. So excited to be here. We're going to be talking about your medical cannabis journey. And just to get us started, can you bring us back to your own youth and your first exposure and understanding in regards to cannabis? Sure. As we were chatting a little bit beforehand, um, I'm from the same hometown as Bob Dylan, and it's it's about 200 miles north of uh, Minneapolis. And like most people, I was exposed to it in high school. It was mostly the stuff that's at the bottom of a bag, um, the shake. And so we would just kind of be like, oh, wow, this is great stuff, and la, la, la. And that's kind of how I was introduced to it. In college, I learned that actually it's a little more potent than that stuff that we were getting. And, you know, it was kind of, eh. I didn't become a big weed user in college. It wasn't um, anything that was of interest to me until I became a parent. So we do try to, like, track not just the history of weed culture and the weed movement, but the history of weed itself on this show. And I have to say, northern Minnesota has never really been known for its incredible cannabis. <laughs> right? The but, you know, with maybe with climate change, it'll get better. Yeah, once it's warmer up there, yeah. Maybe it'll have that Cush Mountain climate. And so then when did cannabis reemerge in your life? So maybe it was good. I had some early exposure when I had my son. When he was only 18 months old, he had a neural cancer, a, spine, a big tumor in his spinal cord. And so he had a bunch of surgeries. And so he is what is considered now to um, be disabled. He has cognitive disability and autism. Since he was 18 months old, this really disrupted his development, and he has not really ever been able to communicate effectively. He can't speak, but if you ask him, does something hurt? Um, where does it hurt? He cannot answer you. If you ask him, where does it hurt? He'll say yes or no, and then he'll say duck in the water. His speech is not functional, even though he does speak and can say words. When he was three, he had this, what they call behavior, where he would just run up to anything that was hard, like our cast iron bathtub, and start just banging his head on it. Blood would be everywhere, and you know all the autism experts would just say, oh, that's a behavior. It's called self-injurious behavior, which I was like, yeah, duh, yeah, I can see that. Um, and they were just like, so what he needs, he needs a helmet 
and we need to put him on psychiatric drugs, and you need to put him in, in an institution. You know, like, he's had cancer, he's had all these surgeries, he was in a body cast for a year. Like, there's, of course, he's going to have, like, all these refractory problems. Especially when he was in the cast, it was a real drag, because he had 14 diarrheas a day that I would have to clean up out of this, this body cast. And they're like, oh, that has nothing to do with anything. You know, he obviously, maybe you're feeding him too much milk or something. But I managed to get, at Mass General Hospital, I did get a gastroenterologist who was somewhat credulous. He did an endoscopy and said, oh my God, your son has something called eosinophilic gastroenteritis. It's an autoimmune problem that's very close to ulcerative colitis. So basically, his entire digestive tract was inflamed. So what this doctor did is he put him on an ulcerative colitis drug and just, boop, Immediately, our son was better. And that kind of set the stage a little bit for me where, you know, my new parent, my first kid, everyone's telling me, do this, do that. Like, I don't know anything about this condition that he has. Then I was really feeling like, you know what? If I would have listened to them, he would be in an institution right now just banging his head, banging his head in so much pain, nobody helping him. So he kind of went on. We found a really nice school for um, special needs kids in Rhode Island. And he's going along, going along pretty well. But then when he was nine... By that time, he tends to get a lot of tolerances to drugs. And he also actually has what's called a paradoxical reaction. Like a lot of parents will like, quote unquote, drug their kids with Benadryl to make them sleepy. But we tried that once on a plane. It made him super hyper. He just doesn't react to things the way you would expect someone to react. And then also, I just got this funny feeling that, gee, I told my husband, I'm wondering if this drug is like giving him stomach cramps because he's getting that look again on his face. Um, And indeed... It seemed like the ulcerative colitis is coming back. But at the same time, he's at a school that does something called applied behavioral analysis. But then they said, well, he's having like 300 aggressions a day. We have to do something about this. They were kind of an aggression. Anything could, it could be anything from like trying to poke someone to just biting them. And at that point, Jason was doing a lot of pretty serious aggressions, like lunging at people. He bit me. He, um, I have, I still have a ton of scars. Like when he would get upset, he would just bite, hitting, kicking. The school basically called us in and said, you have to put him on some kind of drugs like the rest of the children here. Um, or, he can't stay at the school. It was it was super coercive. And then, you know, we'd go through these meetings and then it'd be like, here's a list of psychiatrists you can take him to. And it was obvious, you know, for a child who can't communicate, it's just obviously, so you can get your, your drugs. So there's one drug that they use for children with autism. It's an antipsychotic called Risperidol. So I dutifully went to the library, to the science library to look up the study. And they stopped the study within six weeks. So there was no long-term effect. And it was just... So already it was a little unsettled that they're they're pushing this drug on us. Yeah, and this was the best option that they had for you. Correct. They were like, this is the best uh, antipsychotic drug there is for this that's, condition. Uh, that's it. It had a black box warning, which means it's the most dangerous drug. It Were there side effects listed? There were side effects, and many of them were permanent. Um, oh, God. There was something called gynecomastia, which is when you grow men men grow male skirt breasts there's something called tardive dyskinesia which is a constant like involuntary tick-like movement um death was also listed as a side effect oh my god um and then just given that there's so little effectiveness i just uh, i can't give this to my child it's an antipsychotic sedative it's basically like giving your kid a lobotomy it's a chemical lobotomy and it sounds like at this time you're also developing something of a of a mistrust of 
the medical establishment and sort of their approach to individualistic care in, in that, you know, what I kind of hear in your descriptions is a feeling that they are more trying to deal with your son than to heal him or to provide the best care possible. Oh, absolutely. But within that paradigm, you know, my father is an anesthesiologist. So I grew up in a very medical household. I was actually supposed to be the doctor. We just really grew up for every everything. There was always like a pill and anesthesiology is so, you know, precise. You do this, you get this. And, and, you know, my father was actually a pioneer in open heart surgery. Modern medicine is so amazing. But yes, again, um, even in that paradigm, I'm sort of feeling like, you know what, I've just always been very passive and I'm the dumb person. But then, you know, for me, I think I would have been, okay, yeah, I must... But for my child, I think it was like, no, cannot put this, this makes zero sense putting this in him, even though it, it's like, it's the England Journal of Medicine. This is a drug. He has this condition. We give him this drug. But it just didn't make any sense to me. And then I have to thank Michael Pollan because I was reading his book, The Botany of Desire, and he was talking about how cannabis slows down your short-term memory. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining like, oh, that's why like, wow, this thing is so cool. But for my son, I know he has too much like 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 alpha waves basically, and his you can see how quickly he thinks stuff, but he can't keep up with it, and that's what kind of makes me go to pieces. Because we had been trying to teach him how to ride a bike, and even just the idea of like breaking it down. This is how you pedal. You have to put pressure on this. Was he would just flip out? So then I thought, oh, short term memory, and then you know, so I then I was kind of back to the cannabis thing, and then the idea of. Oh, cannot kill you. And then I found it then I found a study about it killing cancer cells in vitro and also being anti-tumoral. So I was kind of building up this little thing, but he was 9 at the time. What what year was this? This was 2008-2009. There's a very weird convergence of stories here because as I was getting this idea, Rhode Island had just come online with their medical program. But of course, Back then, no one was using pot for children. It would have been immediately called social services. You know, my son's like 21 now. So this was like a while ago. And nobody, like, I couldn't find any literature of anyone ever trying cannabis. Even, you know, so even with his integrative doctors, they were just like, shut up, shut up. I didn't hear this. You know, they didn't even want to get involved at all. Like, I would never prescribe something like this. Like, you just don't even talk about it. That's a dumb idea. And I'd be like, but it can't kill him. Like, what What would be the problem? Why can't we try this? And so I was like, why don't you just go out and have him smoke a joint? I'm like, no, no, no. I was like, cannabinoids. And I was like, your body's an endocannabis system. And, you know, I was, <laughs> so, I was just kind of like freaking out about it. Because yeah. the more research I did, the better it seemed. And and, and based on the, the sources of information that you're going to, did you feel like you were going outside of what you normally would have trusted if you weren't somewhat desperate for a solution? And how how real did those sources seem? How real did that data seem to you at the time? This is also where um, our dear departed Lester Grinspoon comes in. You know, I was trained as an economist, and so I want to see the data. I need empiricism. Then I found Lester's work, and I thought, he's at Harvard Medical School. Lester! So I called him up, and he, you know, as you know, he's an incredibly warm person, and he just thought... He just said to me, well, it's a very unusual idea, but he wasn't non-supportive of it. The more we talked about it, the more he was kind of like warmed up to a little bit. And then also more importantly, I was telling him one of my biggest fears, of course, was having my son taken away from me because I'm using illicit drugs. Even if they are legal, it is federally legal. 
And as you know, Lester is very reassuring in terms of he has, he told me he had a lot of friends at Harvard Law School. And he, you know, so I, having that was really, really helpful. So I started taking like these first little steps. Jason's neurologist. My son Jay's neurologist also went to Brown and he's more of a peer. We have a bunch of peer relationships. When I finally asked him, he was kind of, uh, ah. But then I showed him all the studies. You know, there are studies, um, National Institutes of Health studies, like the antitumoral studies. And I could show him the LD50. I said, look, you know, it doesn't seem like it disrupts hormones. And then, then I showed him the Risperidol. And I was like, this looks very bad for him. Since he's a neurologist, he's seen a lot of bad effects from antipsychotics, particularly with what's called polypharmacy. When you stack them all up, <laughs> you get all these side effects. No one knows what's going on. So he was all, well, you know, and also this is very tricky because if, you know, if I help you with this, you know, if it ever got leaked, I'm going to look really stupid because I'm prescribing pot. So he made us try Marinol first um, as, you know, Marinol is a prescription form. And in general, just real quick, just to explain Marinol. So Marinol is a pharmaceutical that employs a single synthetic cannabinoid, right? And it can, and Marinol can also kill you <laughs> because it's, um, you, people have died from taking too much Marinol. My mother-in-law passed away from pancreatic cancer. So I should, maybe this, this sort of side note to that was we also got her cannabis for that. But because she comes from that kind of um, society of the 50s where the DEA is going to immediately come and take you away in handcuffs, even though she had one fantastic day with cannabis, um, she never tried it again. And she had some pretty horrific side effects from the Marinol. So I already had that in the back of my mind. But then I thought, well, I'll have to do the Marinol step first. And of course, Jason had horrible side effects in the Marinol. He passed out. He just he just looked terrible. So our doctor was nice enough to finally sign for the license. So in terms of history, there is a group called RIPAC, which is the Rhode Island Patients Advocacy Coalition. What I didn't realize at the time, so this is 2009, that in 2006, so Jesse Stout, who was an undergraduate in 2006, um, he was in something called like Students for Sane Drug Policy or something, and it was just kind of a fun. Yeah. Okay. Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Okay. We actually interviewed uh, the co-founder for an episode. Okay, so you know, but you know, so they were kind of like, this is our club, and we're gonna let's do something that we can see the fruits of while we're undergrads. So it wasn't necessarily cannabis like a motivated, but it you know, it's about correcting stupid drug laws, and you know, cannabis mm-hmm. obviously has has just made so many lives miserable. So they thought, let's. <laughs> see if we can get a medical program going. And so this was in 2006. So here we are in 2009, and I'm just barely wading into it. But at the same time, I was still completely, I'm trying to put you in the headspace. I'm a mom. I'm a professor. Everyone's telling me I'm crazy. Every time I even mention it to a doctor, they're just like, they're just so angry. Yes. And I think this just speaks to the level of propaganda that always propped up this prohibition. When you say you are a professor, uh, you have a lineage in your family of medical professionals. You are meeting not just with doctors, but with specialists who are supposed to be particularly attuned to the conditions that your son is suffering from. And not only are they not recommending this treatment, which, as you say, has no lethal dose and and certainly doesn't seem to be nearly as potentially harmful as what they're offering you, but they are actively discouraging you from even trying it. And even in their own words, 
Uh, and forgive me to the person who said that to you, but he wasn't worried about whether it was going to work or not so much as he was worried about how it might affect his professional standing. Right. And that is a valid concern of his as well. So you can kind of see, you know, I'm a parent. I'm kind of like, you know what? Let me just not do it. It's easier not to do it, you know, because I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't want to go there. It's so uncharted. Like I'm all by myself. But then on the other hand, I'm like, I can't give him this drug. So one day I'm walking home from work, blah, 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 walking through the Brown campus. And it's just like, there's this, there's this lounge where they have meetings for stuff, like just student stuff. I used to do Taekwondo there or whatever. I was a Brown undergraduate as well. And it's like, Rhode Island patient advocacy cannabis meeting here tonight. And I just thought, oh my God, like, how can I not go? Like, I don't have to drive. Like, I'm walking by this. I'm going home. So I just thought, I have to go to this to see what it is. So I go to this meeting. And, you know, and again, all I have is propaganda in terms of what's this going to look like? It's going to be all stoners and druggies. I want my free pot or whatever. But it wasn't. It was just all these people who are not unlike me at the end of their rope in terms of it was mostly people who had like intractable like back problems and so forth. I wonder if anyone has a neurological problem. And I found a guy who had Tourette's. So I ran up to him and I was like, can you please tell me what is what does the cannabis do for you? Tell me about it. And he said... You know, when I'm on a correct dose, I don't have that urge to spit out the expletive. At that point, I was really like, okay, you know, the neurological part, the cancer part, it's not going to harm him part. So then I went to the doctor and I said, dude, we're going to do this. But then the other problem is, so the students had made the medical marijuana, like it's legal, but then... What am I supposed to do? Like, get it off the street? Like, this was long before they had, you know, any kind of a... Yeah. So this is actually something that I'm very curious about. Like you said at the time, you're working at a university, you're a mom, and now you have to score. (laughs) You have to get weed from somewhere. What was that process like for you? My husband was at Yale getting his PhD, and that was the time... Um, they were making something called Illy, where they're cutting cannabis with all sorts of amphetamines and other problems. So I was, it sounds like an evening news sort of <laughs> propaganda, but yeah, I, I, I definitely remember the you the know the, that that concept. Yeah, but but similarly, you know, because our son had cancer, you also have to remember when your kid has had cancer, you don't let anything non-organic in their body. So um, so when I talked to the head of RIPAC, I was kind of like, ah. Maybe you can help me find a grower and maybe the person can grow it organically. I kind of feel really strongly about that. And she just was very much, lots of luck, lady. Because also the, at the RIPAC meeting, people were also trying to get other people to grow for them. But then it heard, I heard it makes your house really stinky and it looks very difficult. And yeah, so it was actually, that was probably the more depressing part was realizing, oh, great. I did all this work to get a license. I don't know what to do. And yeah, this was long before there were any dispensaries anywhere. Mm. So, because this was 2009. But then finally, one day, um, Joanne Lepinen, she was the head, called me and said, oh, there's this guy who went to the, the, like the Rhode Island like agricultural school. And he's like devoted his life to wanting to grow cannabis in a, you know, like in an organic way. And I said, no way. Does he grow in soil? And she's like, yeah, I'll talk to him. So I talked to him. I was like, you know, when we, we were on the same page. So we met him and he was very, very committed. And this is how we started because I didn't know, you know, when you're, when you grew up in hipping, it's like, and you're getting the shake at the bottom of the bag. Like I didn't even realize the, the sativa versus the indica and the, you know, the different kinds. So he would have to bring over 
billions of strains. And we were just trying to figure out, like he even brought over his vaporizer, but Jason couldn't figure out how to use it. And so we were trying to figure out like how, you know, like what kind of material to make it with, you know, do we want to use a lipid? Do we want to use some kind of glycerin? And, and how was Jason consuming the doses? We decided we were going to use an organic olive oil as like a distillate. And he was very good at that. And so also he had was doing that for a different patient, I think who had Huntington's. So he had had very good luck with that. But you know, this is before they did PCR and stuff like we don't we have no idea what's in it. Do you know what I'm saying? But we can see the color. <laughs> Do you know what right. I mean? Because I'm having these zillions of notebooks trying to, you know, make sure I know what the dose is and we try because we had some crazy side effects for a year. You know, he had the red eyes, he'd get couch lock, um, he'd get aggressive. <laughs> but after a year, we were kind of not, it was not going super well. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the benefits um, did not exceed the cons at the time. And also because of the way that it was set up, poor, um, I won't mention his name just in case I'm not supposed to. He can't, he can't make a living. We were only allowed to pay him what his materials cost. And if he had excess, he could donate it. But so he was also having problems because you know, he'd get an infestation and he just didn't know if this was going to be a long-term possibility for him. So we were already worried if we were going to have like a constant supply once we found something. So then we're trying one more and he's like, this is this stuff called white Russian and all the cancer patients use it and it's super painkilling and it's probably going to be really difficult. So um, I always try everything when I can before my son does. So I took a teeny tiny bit. I think he had made it, put it in a ghee. Our son can't have... Um, he can't have dairy, but ghee doesn't have casein or lactose. So we put in a little bit of ghee, and I just took a teeny, teeny, tiny piece. I completely passed out. Like, I, I just felt really weird. I was like, ah, this is just, ah, I'm a little worried about this. I, I think it's really fascinating and, and, and courageous in a way and really beautiful that you did that, that you would try all of these medicines <laughs> Uh, before giving it to yourself, w- were there positive aspects of that for you? Did you come to enjoy cannabis uh, personally or find it beneficial? Or were you simply uh, act- acting as a as a sort of line of defense before before giving them to Jason? Um, in terms of the benefits, I, I can tell you about it when we hop more forward at the time. I found out I have a rare reaction to it. I have a hypermesis reaction to cannabis. To edibles. Hypermesis is uncontrollable throwing up. Oh no, cyclical vomiting, huh? Apparently the way it is um, metabolized when you have an edible, it goes through your liver as well and it goes through like two cycles and some people, I don't know if it's a genetic thing, no, so when I have too much edibles, I just cannot stop throwing up and it's disgusting. Oh no. But, so what's weird is, so we, so we decided to just like bake some cookies. So this is how we're trying it because, you know, it tastes terrible. We're, we're just trying to figure out how to give it to our son. We bake him these cookies. We give him some. And then it was just like, it wasn't at all like he was high. It was just like the pain just got tamped down that he was just like, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's like magic and he was fine. Um, but again, just sort of going back to, you know, wanting to hospitalize him and he'll never, you know, the other big thing is he'll never learn how to ride a bike. And so once this, once he slowed down and, you know, he wasn't in pain, like you guys should see us riding bikes, dude. Like I made his, I made his, um, 
his teacher come who said he could never learn how to bike because they're like, well, kids with autism, there's too much executive functioning and they don't know how to steer. And, you know, I just showed him Jason like riding the bike around, riding the bike around. So. Yeah. So, so th- this is like a really demonstrative aspect of his treatment that, you know, teachers would say like, okay, this is like a line they're drawing. This kid is never going to learn to ride a bike. And what better demonstration of this treatment actually working than him riding a bike? You know what I mean? Here he is. He's overcoming this massive obstacle. He's crossing this line that you said he was never going to be able to cross. So we were, we, because it's legal, we said, okay, so he's got to get it at school. And they're like, oh, no, you can't do that. That's illegal. Da, 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 da. But so at that point, I was like, no, look, I'm a professor. It is legal by this statute, this statute, this statute. It is our right. It is his medicine. Here is his prescription. So then they're like, oh, okay. So then they bring this, they buy this like safe with like 80 million locks on it. You know, I'm like, (laughs) this is so much safer than that crappy Risperidol or whatever crap you're giving them that you're handing out. But they're like, Mm -hmm. no, no. Because, you know, a couple times, like, when I'd have to give him I just, like, throw it in his lunch. And they were like, oh, my God, we had, like, a hazmat thing going on. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, here, I'm like, I put his cookie in his lunch. So it, it just became this huge, crazy thing. Um, but then, however, one of um, Jason's classmates' mom's like, whoa, that was a kid who was had the 300 aggressions every day and so forth. Um, look, you know, I'm going to do this, too. So she ended up doing it with her son. But ironically, because of Jason... It really helped her son, but ironically, this is why we ended up moving out of Providence. One day when they could not, so this is a school for kids with autism. This is what they do all day. They could not get the, um, he was taking an oil. They could not get him to take his oil. So he had this huge meltdown. So they called the cops and the EMS who sedated him, tied him to a gurney, brought him to the ER without calling the parents first. Oh my God. Right? I told my husband, we can't stay here, cannot stay here. This cannot happen to Jay. And you know what was crazy? When we were looking for other schools, one of the schools they recommended, they used electroshocks on the kids. Oh you look it up, they, had, they did a whole thing in the New York Times Magazine about the kid, this kid dying from them shocking them. And it just made me realize, you know, these kids at the who cannot speak are just kind of at the complete margins without us, like, helping them. Yeah, so I was kind of like, no, we are not staying. You know, every other place I saw in Rhode Island either had a restraint chair or like these crazy zapping um, shocks. So that's how we ended up, unfortunately, into the next part of our cannabis journey, having to leave all all the support we had in Rhode Island and then move to New York. Oh, my God. And at this time, as, as you're starting to dial in the the dosage and 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 seeing the positive effects of cannabis as medicine, how is that affecting your relationship with your son, your your family life? What are the changes that that brings outside of just simply the medicinal benefits? Right. I'm glad you brought that up because you know what I mean? Once, once you see it every day, you forget how awful it was. But he never called me mommy before or seemed to think I was not a piece of furniture that was biteable. You know, I never had, since he was 18 months old, I never had that feedback why people want to have kids. Your kid's so cute. They want to hug you or, you know, do things, you know, just to have him like, look at me and call me mommy or he'll say, mommy keeps me safe. Just like he has some understanding. Yeah. Like in a small way that, you know, what I've done for him or that how much better he feels. We've been able to like 
go on trips and go out. And you, we just, um, I can't even like explain like how there's so many times in the Providence Whole Foods, I would just have to abandon the cart because there would be some blowout. And just seeing people's faces when they just saw Jason attacking me, like I would get upset seeing their faces. I'd be like, why are you looking at me like that? People called the cops on us because they thought we must be abusing him because why would he be so wild and trying to like attack us like that? So yeah, it's opened up a new emotional life for him. One of the things with the biking that has been so enormously helpful is that he can, he looks like a normal child when he's biking. And you know what I mean? Like, even if we don't know what he's thinking, that must feel really good. He's not cured. He doesn't have an independent life, but it's allowed him to become who he is. And ironically, um, having the cannabis has made the autism more prominent because we didn't see what was underneath. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, he's just having all this aggression all day and this screaming and stuff. But now, so it's just brought us more to the to homeostasis, basically. It, it really is. It's like, it's like an adaptogenic, it's adaptogenic, like, botanical, basically. That's excellent. That's wonderful. <laughs> and I, I do want to go back and talk about the essay that you wrote. And, and in essence, your decision to go public with how you made that decision, the process of publishing it, and, and what the reaction to that essay was. It was probably around 2009, 2010, when I did the first Slate ones. It was one of these things where I just felt like I, I had my Lester moment because, as you know, Lester set out to prove how bad cannabis was. And then when he found out it wasn't, he just felt like he had to tell the world about it. And I just felt like as a parent and as a writer, I could not do it. But legally, it was just very tricky. So, again, Lester's like, no, no, we got all these people. So don't worry. And you've got your license. You can do this. So I made, I made a very specific decision, however, not to do any TV media. I was only going to write it so I could look at every word and, you know, make sure I was saying what I wanted to say. But after that first Slate piece came out, I did not come up with the title. It was called Why I Give My Autistic Kid Pot, which was not super accurate. But as you know, this is how they make these labels. Yeah. But it was basically clickbait. This- Slate yeah, is not above clickbait. Right. You know, so, but maybe it's good because then people stopped to read the article. But it was basically the story that I've told you here. You know, we were, I was still like, like in the process. But the crazy thing was, you know, within minutes of it going online, the Brown switchboard called me and said, we have all these calls coming for, in for you, Professor Lee, which you do, blah, blah. you know, it was just like Campbell Brown at CBS, Good Morning America, and everyone was calling. So I took one call just to see what the deal was. And it was pretty clear that they were hoping, oh, look, professor drugs her kid with pot instead of dealing with her kid. I could already see a little bit of what mm. the narrative was going to be. They got so many calls. They said at one point the, switch, the switchboard was like completely overwhelmed, and I was really excited because the PR person said, normally I'm begging people to like take my stories, but this is so exciting because I just told her to take every call and tell every person no. Tell everyone no. No, 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 no. <laughs> and so, and the ironic thing too that made me super mad is, um, so then a couple of days later, my friend said, oh, I saw you in Good Morning America. What's up with that? And I said, no, it couldn't have been me. I didn't say anything. And they actually, <laughs> they did some like thing about pot and children and they had a cutout of me and they just took words from a slate piece. So it somehow looked, I guess, on TV when it went by really fast. So, but that's how much people were just kind of like dying for this story. I just really felt that, I wanted to, people to know that there is this out there and it's really, really safe. Later, it turned out that Johnson & Johnson was sued for $8 billion over the marketing of Risperidol. 
by the way. Oh, wow. And that was the drug that they were trying to give Jay. That is correct. When I've done talks on cannabis, at least one parent comes up and said, I wish I'd never given my child prosperidol. Like she has diabetes now and they feel so guilty. But I just tell them, look, if I were in your shoes, that would have been me. Totally. Tell me what to do. There's a drug. I'll take it. I feel that so much. So that's the whole reason that I did that. The other thing, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about Jason, but that one was Obama could have taken it off the DE schedule and effectively made it legal. And I just kind of felt like, well, maybe if I write it in the Post and he'll see it, he'll do it. Because it seems like such a um, high benefit, low risk. He did not. He didn't listen to me. But I feel so strongly that I have to let people know this is out there. And it's, it's not empirical. It's anecdotal. It's just me. So it's, I mean, it must have been incredibly frustrating for you over so many years to be banging this drum. I mean, did you feel enraged by, by the backlash that you got? Now that you're bringing up politics, I think I've become more enraged by the fact that science is completely clear. Cannabis has therapeutic uses. It is not dangerous. So I kind of feel like any candidate who does not want to take it off the schedule is either anti-science or there's something else going on. It's so obvious that I don't understand why we're still in this situation. Do you? Cannabis as a medicine goes back thousands of years to some of the oldest forms of medicine, and they were obviously right. When you get to the prohibition era, when you're completely demonizing this plant and everybody who uses it, of course, you have to deny those obvious medical benefits in order to maintain the overall propaganda and prohibition. And then I look at your story as another example of people challenging this system. And now the idea of pediatric use of cannabis, whether it's for autism, whether it is for seizure disorders, this whole movement of medical cannabis has been through civil disobedience and through people like yourself, who, in essence, had to make a decision to try something no matter what anybody else said. And looking at all the other families and people who, through your example and through the example of people who looked at your example, now have access to this for their children and are now have a pathway where it doesn't seem so scary. I'm happy to see that. And actually, it's becoming more of a standard treatment for seizures because it works really, really well. So I just feel for me... I can, I can deal with people going, quit drugging your kid. <laughs> I can deal with that. And it's been incredibly rewarding because I agree, there have been some underground networks where people have contacted me saying, oh, my kid's in this institution or there's this. And it's been a really interesting. One person, her child had something called tuberous sclerosis. Her child could not stop just clawing his face into hamburger. And he had to wear a helmet. It was just awful. But this was in Portland. And so through some, some networks... Um, they were able to get him some cannabis and it completely, she sent me a picture, his skin completely cleared up and that now, you know, Oregon has such wonderful laws. Like it's, it's like not a problem anymore, but it went from this kid, like torturing himself, torturing his parents, like having to be institutionalized to, he can just eat banana bread. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Like this is a human right. And I think, I think our problem is we're still too shy about, oh, it's an illicit drug. Illicit is bad as opposed to, no, it is bad. 
to deny people their own liberty and pain-free living. You know, for my status as a professor or a writer, whatever I can do, I'm willing to sort of gather up all that social capital and like blow it on this because yeah. we can't live as a society. Do you see what I'm saying? We can't live as a society. And just think what a better society it could be if we could just get cannabis at the bodega. That yeah. is what we've been saying this whole time on this right. show. And, and we're really me. glad you agree with us. <laughs> and yeah, you know, something that we cover a lot on this show are people who have to sacrifice something. They have to sacrifice their own potential in order to stand up for cannabis. And, and to me, that's really tragic because no one wants to be a martyr. But time and time again on our show, we talk about people who were forced to do that or who made that choice because it was so important to them that no one else in the future suffer what they were suffering, right? You took up this fight at a time when it was really, really difficult. And, and we both really commend you for that. You are, you are on the wall of legends for great moments in weed history. Did you ever feel that you had to sacrifice part of your career that you had to change your life in a fundamental way in order to take up this fight. For a while, whenever you would Google my name, when I would have to go do an academic thing, the big thing, cannabis would always come up. Welcome to the club. So, yeah, it was a little, just, do you know what I'm saying? Just stuff like that and just kind of, well, yeah. We joke on here uh, <laughs> that Rabbi David Bienenstock and Professor of Islamic Studies Abdullah Saeed <laughs> probably people. don't love sharing a Google search with us. <laughs> <laughs> Those are real people. Shout out them. Still an open invitation uh, for them to join us on the show. Uh, we've both tried to reach out to our name doppelgangers. They do not want to talk to us. <laughs> But it's their own stigmas that they're, uh, you know, uh, that it's it's their own stigmas about cannabis that's stopping them. Uh, I, I'm still confident that one day we'll have those conversations. But yeah, you and, and also, Marie, you've sort of entered a club of people doing this, you know, from that very first grower, from that first uh, meeting of medical cannabis patients, you started expanding a network of cannabis people uh, how, how does that feel for you? What does your cannabis world look like now? But that's the cool thing, like meeting you, Dave, and just kind of that, you know what I mean? Not to get too hippy-dippy about it, but it's kind of, it, it, it is. Please do. <laughs> it's an awesome plant that brings people together. We have this plant and it does so much stuff for us and we're so stupid. We're so mean to it. Every step of the way, we have always had, I don't know, someone willing to help us go a little bit more out of the way than they should, probably matching my own effort um, with their own putting themselves in danger. No, I, I kind of, I agree. And I'm really glad you asked that question because it's not, it's not as if we did it alone. One thing that we need to just switch is this weird puritanical idea that you've got to take your medicine, but what if your medicine makes you feel really good? No, 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 can't do that. And I'm kind of like, why not? Like, what is the problem? Do you see what I'm saying? There really is this kind of clenched, clenched, I don't know, clenched anus kind of um, thing about American culture. We cannot let it go. And, and we don't want to talk about the things that are, ooh, like, mm, that sounds a little scary or a right. little dangerous or whatever. And it's it. like, 
This is a medicine. There's a child that's sick here. So because you are mm, uncomfortable with talking about the medicine because of bullshit stigmas that you have, that child should go on suffering? Is, is right. that the answer? And I think that's what, you know, what makes our community, our cannabis community so special is we talk a lot of times for good reason about the detriments of being targeted and being marginalized by society the arrests, the racism, the destructions of people's lives. But there are positives to having been forced out of a quote-unquote mainstream society that is so fucked up. When you found in your moment that you wanted to seek this plant, despite all of the obstacles that society has put in its way, first of all, there were a group of young activists on a college campus who had never met you who probably honestly weren't even thinking about pediatric use of cannabis specifically, but they just knew and they wanted to do something. And it ended up having a profound effect and you literally were brought face to face with them through fate. And growers of this plant who have been targeted and criminalized, when your own doctors showed somewhat of at least an indifference to what you were going through and wanted to just put a stamp in a book and say, there's your medicine. Here are these growers who would go to these tremendous lengths to bring you, I think you said, billions of kinds of cannabis to try and for no financial gain of their own. Absolutely. And then this community of other patients and other parents who have been able to look at your example and come in and, and join us. I mean, I think that's always been the strength of this plant and the community of people around it. And as we go into a brighter future where people aren't being arrested and people aren't suffering through chemotherapy for no reason, we do want to keep that sense of ourselves alive and understand that we don't have to change our values. Everyone else needs to change theirs and understand what we've been trying to teach them. That's such a that's such a good point, too, because so much of when you think of drugs, it's like backstabbing and like all this, you know, we think of narcos and stuff. But I, you know, you've really just come up on something really good besides the fact that I feel like anyone in the cannabis community is smart enough to see the science. So there's just that. But there is a kind of trust where just, you know, I mentioned like my schedule is completely crazy. But like when your book came out or when you, when you guys asked me to do this, I was like, okay clear stuff out because there is really just this no 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 I'm going to do this because there is just this level of trust and commitment and it's kind of cool it's not like I'm expecting reciprocity it's more like we're all giving it our all and then it makes something bigger do you see what I'm saying and it's, uh, it's uh, kind of cool I'll just throw out the, <laughs> the, the Bob Dylan line it, you must be honest if you want to live outside the law and I think that is another thing that brings us together that's beautiful, man. And it is like we do live in this weird, weird, like Sin City world where all the seeming good guys are actually terrible villains and all the outlaws are the good guys. Yeah, look at the Sacklers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know, oh, right? Man. The Sacklers, that's the they medical nice. establishment yeah. right there. They look nice. Yeah. But then the other stupid thing is everybody knows in states where cannabis is legal that opioid deaths go down. Like, this is empirical. Yeah. Are we doing something about it? No, 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 because opiates are too. Too money. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, no. It like, okay, all these people will die. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Facing that is just 
crazy making. Yeah. And now we live in a country where like half the people are anti-science. So we've got our we've got our yeah. battles for the future sure. uh, cut out for us. So just before we wrap it up, I wanted to ask one last question. Can you give us an update on Jason? How's he doing? He's 21 now. Where's he at? How's he doing? What's going on? The other thing we used to, we didn't see, we never saw him smile. We never saw him smile. I'll send you some guys some pictures and some video. He smiles all the time. He's a really sweet laugh. And so I'm kind of like, wow, he actually smiles. He didn't smile before because he was in pain all the time. And you see these pictures, he's got this little, when you're in pain all the time. You're not, you don't want to smile and no one's helping you. So you're probably going to want to hit him to get your, their attention. He smiles. He's, he's in the moment. He can enjoy things. I mean, <laughs> I just have so no, he's, he's great. I mean, he just, and he's just busting out with help. That's awesome. That is absolutely wonderful to hear. And we're so happy that you were able to find cannabis therapy for him when he needed it most. And we're very thankful that there are people like you out there in the world who might not be particularly cannabis interested but can recognize the incredible medicinal potential of this plant that we love so much. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for going on that journey. I think it's inspiring to a lot of people. If you are a person listening to this and your child has autism or seizure disorder or any other number of ailments that could be treated with cannabis, please look up Marie Lee's articles all about her medical cannabis treatments for her son, Jay. They're out there, Washington Post, Slate, and a bunch of uh, Medium posts that you did as well, which were very informative. Seek out that knowledge. Your child does not have to suffer. You don't have to suffer. Cannabis could potentially be the medicine that they need. So before going all in on what your doctors are telling you, look for those other opinions. Marie Lee did it. And her son was better off for it. That's all we got for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Marie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I hope a lot of people listen to this. I think they will. We hope that too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.